Hi there, and welcome to the Mission Forward podcast, where each week we bring you a thought-provoking and perspective-shifting conversation on the world around us. I'm Carrie Fox, your host and CEO of Mission Partners, a social impact communications firm and certified B Corporation. We have such a special guest with us today, someone who is literally working on the ground floor of rewriting the role of media in society. Alicia Bell is director of Media 2070, which is both a project of free press, a research essay detailing the role that media has played in anti-Black racism and harm, and a growing consortium of media makers and activists collectively working toward media reparations. Alicia and her team are not just talking about the need for reparations, they're actively working toward it. They just partnered with more than 20 lawmakers to call on the FCC to examine how media-related policies have harmed Black communities and other people of color. This is serious and needed stuff we're talking about here. The reality is that anti-Blackness is a global issue, and we will never build the critical mass to transform our culture if we don't address it in our media first. Alicia is at the heart of this critically important reckoning, one that is designed to move newsrooms to a place that can care for and support all people in the community, and that can finally address the issue of anti-Blackness that has been present in our media for hundreds of years. Stay tuned for this powerful conversation to dream up media reparations with Alicia Bell of Media 2070. You know, as I read and dig more into Media 2070, and I reread the essay over the weekend, and we'll we'll make sure that folks who are listening have a link to that. But I continue to not just think, but very deeply believe that you all are leading one of the most important movements of our time, and and dare I say, maybe even of all time, to transform media. And that transformation includes a call for media reparations, which I hope and suspect we're going to break down what that means a bit more in today's conversation. But really, it feels like what what's happening here is a much broader call for an entirely new media culture, right? One that moves newsrooms, as you've said, to a place that can care for and support all people in the community. And that finally, hopefully fully, addresses the issue of anti-Blackness that has been present in our media for hundreds of years. So there's a lot that I want to get to in this 30 minutes, but I first want to just start by having you talk a little bit about you, how you came to this work, and and introduce us to Media 2070. Uh, I really appreciate that um, overview, Carrie, because it it is, you know, reparations, we talk a lot about it being a, a kind of a, a destination, but also a pathway um, with, with several destinations on the way, and the the ultimate destination is this one where there is a media system um, and a, a culture surrounding media news and information um, that is that is caring, that is feeling, that is um, reparative in and of itself, that is um, in constant kind of reparative culture that is acknowledging harm when it happens and gets, gets more practice and skill at doing that. Um, but to answer answer the, the the first question of kind of who I am even coming into this work, um, my name is Alicia Bell, and I'm currently the Media 27 Director at Free Press. Um, and I, I came into working in and around media, news, and information 
Um, and I really kind of happened upon it. Um, I, I don't come from a media background. Um, I don't come from a journalism background. My, my background is mostly in kind of advocacy, organizing, education. And I have always been around um, what I now know are, are culture creators. Um, so maybe that was artists, creative folks, um, folks who were curating events or gatherings or things like that. Um, and, and that's where, and it's, it's been this thing that's kind of just been on the side of everything I've done. Um, so I've, I've done my, my work and my education and my professional work, and then also would like be in these artistic spaces or these creative spaces. And so through that, that all of those kinds of things led me back to, to North Carolina, which is my home state. And in North Carolina, I was working at a coffee shop with a, a local nonprofit who was building up the coffee shop as a way to, to build mentorship and skill building um, for, for working class communities of color here in Charlotte. And through that work, I, I began kind of mapping out the community because folks were coming through. Folks were having events. Folks were um, wanting coffee. People were having meetings in the space. All of those things that you do when you want to support a nonprofit and you also want coffee. Um, and, and so through that, I got connected to to folks who were running a listserv about um, just progressive organizing jobs. And I saw a role on there um, for, for free press. And I had been looking for, for things that were organizing based um, because I, I wanted to expand so much of this work. Um, and when I saw the work with free press, it was launching a project in North Carolina called News Voices, which aims to, to make the space between communities and newsrooms smaller um, through relationship building. And so I saw this and I knew that I knew how to organize and I knew I knew how to build community, but I didn't know anything about journalism or media or like media justice or any of these things. Um, so I applied because I was like, well, I have, I have the things they want, but there's a lot I don't know. And I was surprised every time I got called back for an interview, I was shocked. And I was in between doing research on like, what is this movement? What is this? What is, what is happening? And asking my partner so many questions because they're so much more skilled and knowledgeable about like tech and media and, and the digital sphere. Um, so I'd be like, okay, what? Like I heard about net neutrality. What does that mean? Um, and so it was my partner who would tell me all these things. And so Free Press hired me and that, and had it not been for that, I don't know if I would be doing the same kind of work around media and community building and, and community making through news and information that I'm doing now. And the way that I learned journalism was the way that you organize, right? When you organize, you have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. You ask them what they care about, what their goals are, what their intentions are. And that's what I did with journalists. I set up a lot of coffee meetings with journalists to say like, what is it that you want to do? Why do you do this? Um, and that's, that's what brought me into this work initially. You know, what I love so much about that is that you touched on a theme that we have heard in other conversations on Mission Forward. And actually, we talked about it in the conversation with Yada Peng too, that you mentioned you don't come from a media background. And yet, 
you have created something that the media needed and has needed for so long, but almost was too close to it, right? Like couldn't do it for itself the way that maybe you brought an outside perspective that allowed you to to work with this team and collaborate in a way that maybe wouldn't have happened if we didn't have someone who who had truly a fresh and outside perspective. Yeah. You know, when I'm doing newsroom trainings, I often tell the, the newsrooms, like, I'm the person who you were trying to engage before. Like, I, like when we're talking about community engagement and we're, we're talking about what's possible, um, for me, it's very much like I'm thinking about what, it, like, what is my, what did my grandmother need um, from, from newsrooms? And what did my sister need? And what do my neighbors need? Yeah. Um, because that, that is a space I've been in forever. Um, but I, I do think it influences so much of how I think about moving around news and media and also what feels possible in this space. Then to pick up on that and to get us a layer deeper into the conversation, I want to start with your vision, which you outlined, at least in part, on uh, last week, so June 16th, Free Press Live discussion. And so you were talking about how you envision a future where Black dreams are fulfilled in abundance and that we've been able to facilitate that dream because we have shifted the culture of media across all forms. And, and I, I told you I was going to read you back to you, you know, so as, you're, <laughs> as you were talking. That stuck with me so deeply because you touched on something that we have known for so long, see it right in front of us, and yet almost haven't had the muscle or skill to disrupt it, right? But it's how we connect with one another, how we build relationships with one another. So much of that reality is the media we create and the media that informs the culture that we are in. So I just want you to talk a little more about that vision that you have and and how you are driving that vision through Media 2070. At its best, media is is a community center and a community hub. Um, because it is a place where all kinds of people can can connect and overlap with each other, right? When I think about newsrooms and journalism and the ways that there are, there's like coverage and stories about art and stories about food um, and stories about politics and all of those different things. Um, like that, that is such an overlap. That's, I mean, that's a kitchen table, right? Like those are, mm-hmm. those are all the conversations that happen at a kitchen table. And so at, at its best, that's what journalism is. And I think the thing that makes it that way is that the thing I love about, about information and news is that it has the ability to shrink the space between community members. So there's so much that when we're just because of, you know, like urban sprawl and gentrification and displacement and all kinds of things, um, just the way that we build community is so different. The relationships we have with our neighbors are, are different in a lot of ways, in a lot of spaces. And, and so the thing I love about news and information is that it can make that space smaller and it, it, can, it can help us understand each other more. And it can help us understand what's going on in the context for what's going on, right? So when I think about like some of the white elders in my life and the things I've had to talk to them about in terms of just understanding Blackness and Black experience, there's, so, there's only so much I'm able to do in a one-on-one conversation or a one-on-one relationship. But that work has been so fruitful. And I've, I've been in conversation with some of them who are retired now. And they're like, but now I have all this information and what do I do with it? And so I think about that a lot with news and, and with journalism, because I think there's so much there that if, you know, folks, there are folks who have context and have knowledge and 
still don't want all people to be well and don't want all people to have access to equity and economic mobility and um, thriving and justice and all of that. But for a lot of people, they just they just don't have the context and the knowledge and the information. And so I, I see the way that the media does that. Media creates the the culture, um, and it's not it's it's both journalism but all kinds of media, right? So when I am talking to folks in the entertainment industry who are working with writers' rooms, and they're saying that their writers' rooms are pulling from news articles to kind of determine what the story or the script is going to be, then that to me showcases the interweaving even between these parts of media that don't see themselves connected, right? Between Hollywood and your local newsroom. And, and that creates public opinion. It creates perceptions of like what's acceptable and what's right and what's wrong. And a lot of times kind of folks in organizing spaces or in academic spaces as well, we'll talk about this Overton window of like what's possible right now, what policy is possible, what programs are possible. Um, and it's media in a lot of ways that creates that and then is impacted by itself, right? So like when we think about um, all the workers' rights and labor rights issues that are happening in so many newsrooms and how um, the pace at which a newsroom works and the ability to, to have to speak up or not, so much of that is created by the culture that, that old media has created. And, and so it ends up also just not, it's not even self-serving <laughs> that way um, because some of the cultures that get created don't even serve the journalists that are a part of them. That's one of the things that feels important about how we create change and how we create a world that is free of anti-Blackness and, and free of all different kinds of oppressions. We have to think intentionally about the culture that we're contributing towards as writers, as journalists, as poets, as actors, as, as publishers, all of these folks, and think about whether the, the actions that we're taking over time are contributing to that culture or not. And a lot of times I just see that there's there's not a, there's that intention. It's not there um, because folks aren't always thinking of themselves as as nodes of that culture, um, and are, are instead thinking about just like I have to do this reporting work, I have to do this thing that I was kind of assigned to do, or I've I've seen this happen this way, and then that's what I'm going to do without kind of contextualizing it in a larger way. Yeah, and and to that point on intention and maybe starting to pull in movement that there potentially has been intention for some time, but it's almost as if the movement hasn't been big enough or great enough or disruptive enough in that we have been on this cycle. Uh, I've heard you talk about every 50 years, you know, there's there's something in the movement that happens. And I think it's in part tied to why you chose the name Media 2070. So talk to us a little bit about what has happened in that every 50-year cycle that we've been in and how maybe Media 2070 is the disruptor uh, in that cycle. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. That's that's the goal. We're, try- we're trying. There has been so much labor over time, especially amongst Black and Indigenous and other folks of color who have been media makers and have been um, in, in all different fields, who have been journalists, to, to try to shift what's possible and shift what's that space. And I honestly do not think that our call for media reparations currently would be possible had it not been for that work. Even when we say, okay, like diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives have to be oriented towards reparations to, or have to be oriented towards something bigger than a single tactic or a single initiative. I also have to acknowledge that it were it not for 
all of the, the diversity initiatives were it not for all of the representation initiatives that have happened throughout the, the past few decades, that my work right now would not be possible. Um, and so I have so much thanks and so much gratitude for that work. And when we think about kind of situating Media 2070, it does start for us in the, the early 1920s um, in Chicago. So during that, that 1919-1921 um, time period, we saw that there, there were so many race riots and uprisings happening across the U.S., and, and also what we know about uprisings in the U.S. is that they tend to mirror global uprisings and contribute to global uprisings as well. So there were these movements happening across the U.S. And, the, and in Chicago, there was a commission brought together to kind of study the Chicago race riots and figure out what was contributing to them. And what the commission found was that journalism played a huge role in perpetuating segregation and in uh, perpetuating anti-Blackness and racism because of the the language that they used because of the stories that they told because of the structure and so they made recommendations to try to to try to mitigate that by and large the the recommendations were not met the newsrooms did not do it i mean there were some things where they were like use the word negro instead of using a racial slur and like some of those things changed but for the most part the recommendations didn't change and so that's why you see 50 years later in, in 1968 the kerner commission come and study the, the racial uprisings that were happening across the country, this was a federal commission this time, and say almost entirely the exact same things that the Chicago Commission found. And the recommendations were also very similar. I mean, in the, the Community Relations Committee that was kind of contributing to and a part of the Corona Commission was talking about the ways that, that there was no in, institution or industry that left out what they called minority participation as much as the news media, as much as journalism, and said that it was not just, it was a narrative, but it was also a management and leadership and structure of organizations. So they put these recommendations forth also, and then 50 years later, we're having the same conversation about how our newsrooms need to change, how our media institutions need to change, how, how much anti-Blackness there is, how much racism still exists. People are making the same exact calls that they've made for the past 100 years, they tend to rise up and bubble up every 50 years. And so when we were releasing this last year in 2020, we were just like, we can't, this conversation can't happen again in 2070. And we have to start making different actions and different choices now so that we can build up the skill set and build up the practice and the muscle that it takes to make what we know now old hat. Whatever the new thing that we create is, we want to be skilled in that by the time we get to 2070. So that that's, that's what folks are inheriting when they're inheriting news and they're inheriting journalism and institutions. Um, we want them to be in, inheriting something that is more expansive, more abundant, and where there is more space for Black folks to kind of steward and hold our stories from ideation to creation to distribution. There is an excerpt in the essay um, that really speaks to this, uh, at least in part, that stuck with me, this line that, that, that you all had written that said, it was never the goal of a settler colonial nation to become a multiracial democracy. And as you all discussed throughout the essay, our nation's dominant white media system has played a central role in preventing any kind of progress on this front. And the essay is one example after another of all of the instances when uh, any sort of multiracial democracy was squashed or stopped. And, and the, 
the efforts, in fact, that politicians and newsrooms went through to, in fact, stop that. How much of this incredible background in history did you know before coming into this essay? I did not know much of this at all, honestly. Um, I knew, you know, being in North Carolina, I knew a little bit about what had happened with the Wilmington riot um, and the the targeting of Black folks in Wilmington by uh, by white supremacist forces and militias. Um, I and and I learned about that kind of in a space where folks were were lifting up the kind of history of lynchings because there was an increased amount in Wilmington after that happened. Um, and so that's how I learned about Wilmington. But it wasn't, and so that was, in, again, in that kind of arts creative organizing space before even coming into media. Um, and, but what, what I did know was that every single time I was in conversation with a black or brown community and I was asking folks, kind of what is your relationship with local news? People were questioning me because they were like, what do you mean relationship? I don't even know that there's a relationship. I don't, I know that I've heard of them. I know that they've asked some questions sometimes, but I don't think I'd call it a relationship. I don't know if I trust them. I don't, I don't know if they even care about me outside of that one, that one instance. And so I was, you know, hearing from these different folks in different communities. And this was across North Carolina, but also in other places across the country at conferences and convenings and gatherings of folks that people were saying, at best, I don't have a relationship, but at worst, that, that I've been harmed by news or I've been harmed by media. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was what I came into this knowing and knowing that if it was happening across the country, then there was something systemic about it and something structural about it. And so I was in conversation with my colleague, Joe Torres, um, who, who wrote a whole book about this, right? News for All the People. And he wrote about that history of media harm and the way that journalism and news have harmed communities. And so through his work and, and his experience of kind of trying to make that shift, also this work I was doing, but then, but then thinking about different things that other folks at Free Press were seeing and other folks in our wider media justice community were seeing, we started thinking about what repair would have to look like and what repair for this harm or repair for this lack of relationship would be. Um, and so initially we were like, okay, well that, you know, the, the process of repair is reparation. Um, so we started kind of playing with this idea of media reparation. And initially we thought we were going to write an op-ed about it. That was just like the case for media reparations. And we thought, that we could do that in 750 words. And in hindsight, that was foolish. <laughs> I don't know why we thought that. Um, but as we started writing, one, we started learning more. And then two, we ha- started having more questions. And because we are so rooted in, in kind of community source media, us playing with the concept of media reparation also meant us being in conversation with our community about that. So we were talking to folks at the organization Media Justice about, we're thinking about media reparation. What do y'all think about this? I would be in journalism gatherings and um, talk to to journalists and tell them, like, we're thinking about this thing. What do you think? What does this happen? What does that feel like to you? Um, And so it was through those conversations as well that there were more questions that were coming up. And so I I think about, for example, one of the questions we had had 
already kind of named and had written a little bit about the ways that news business was rooted in, in slavery and the facilitation of shadow slavery. And then that made me curious about kind of how that influenced, like, was that what influenced and created classified ads? Was this kind of space? And so what we learned is that those those ads, those slave ads were being run in the first kind of iterations of classified ads and what would go on to be such a huge part of the business of news. Um, those advertisements were some of the first advertisements that, that created the kind of advertising industry that's a part of the news and media business. And so we would hear, you know, about the way that the death of classifieds killed local news. But it, but there was nothing that went beyond that to say, actually, the, the creation of classifieds and what they were advertising and what they were sharing with people was also the death of local news and also the death of media in, in the beginning. We found out that there, we had questions around distribution because we heard from somebody that they were like, well, this legacy paper never even delivered to my neighborhood. And so we looked into that more and found out that there were processes of, of newsroom redlining, um, distribution redlining, where newsrooms wouldn't distribute to communities of color because they didn't see them as worthwhile. Um, they didn't see them as, as important business interest. And so, so much of them, what I was experiencing kind of anecdotally with people made sense in this historic space because it's no surprise that there's no relationship or there's no trust, especially when we know that relationship to institution and trust with institution passes down generationally, there was nothing to pass down. There was no knowing and no trusting to pass down. There, I, I imagine that this process of discovery and uncovering layer after layer must have been, I'm not even sure the words to imagine it, but as I'm hearing you talk, you know, that the true realization and proof that how deeply media is rooted in in slavery and in white supremacist norms and how you go from then learning and discovering all of that to then saying, here's what we can collectively do about it. What does media reparations look like? How do we learn from where we've been to help inform where we go? As we were writing all of this, it didn't feel ethical to us to just put out this huge document of harm and say, all right, y'all, here's this to hold. Uh, good luck. We knew that we had to, we were like, well, if we're naming this harm and we know it's real now, we are, we are positioned because of the way we had been doing trainings and organizing the folks already to, to begin organizing towards something different, organizing towards, towards this media reparation that would, um, that would alchemize and transform harm. And so when we're thinking about media reparations, we're thinking about it across a few different institutions because we know that um, newsrooms have, have harm to atone for um, that they have, they have committed towards Black communities. We know that newsrooms and institutions have harm to atone for in the way that Black journalists have been treated. So that's, that's two different kinds of harm to atone for. We know that um, media funders and philanthropy have harm to atone for. When we think about the ways that the folks made their money and all of those things, there's a lot of harm riddled in there. And we also know that governments have harm to atone for in the way that media policy has been created. Um, I think, for example, about the first radio licenses that were distributed, and they were only distributed to white men. That's a harm to atone for. There's much more 
Um, that's just one example. And so, so we're thinking about these different kinds of harm. And then we know when, when it comes to social media and um, the way that those platforms are existing, a lot of the way that they function are, are based off of the way that news and media and journalism have functioned historically. And so when we think about the platforming of white supremacy on social media, it mirrors the platforming of white supremacy in, in news and in journalism um, that has happened historically. And so that's, that's another harm to atone for. Um, when we kind of consider all those different kinds of harm, what we're looking at are, are four different categories of atonement. And, and I think, you know, four is broad because there's a lot of things in, between, in, in them. Um, but we're thinking about what is the, the, the acknowledgement of harm? Um, first of all, what is the, the reckoning then to kind of have community conversation and build curriculum and knowledge so that more people know that this is, this is something that has happened and something that we have to grow from? And then what is the accountability for that harm, um, whether that be kind of transfer of power, financial compensation, new funds that get created, whatever, new institutions, um, what is that accountability that stops the harm now? And then what is the redress that is in place that makes it so that this harm doesn't happen again? And that's, that's I think, that's the one place where we see the least initiative currently. And it's also the one place that's so necessary. Um, because if we only acknowledge and we only stop now and we don't create plans and systems and structures to prevent this harm from happening in the future, then we will be in the same conversation in 50 years. And I don't think anybody wants to continue being on this hamster wheel where we like keep working, but, but don't see progress and don't see change that reflects the amount of work that we do. Um, so, so that's what we're looking at when it comes to reparation. And we're also, you know, lifting up, there are theater art, there are are theater practitioners, artists who have already lifted up kind of calls for what reparation would look like in art spaces. There are, um, folks organizing in Hollywood and entertainment to figure out what a Hollywood for black lives would look like. Um, and so we're working in kind of collaboration and coalition with those folks. To, to make sure that there is alignment in all of the ways that media impacts people's lives and all of the different shapes that media takes. You know, I, as you talk, every time I've had a chance to hear you or, or listen to you, I am, it becomes even further clear to me that your future is the future that I want to be part of too, and that it requires all of us to play a role to create that new culture, right? It won't just happen by saying, let's, let's read the essay or let's, uh, let's look on and support from the sidelines. But this requires very active support and participation. And very recently, you've, you've all done a few things. You have a pledge out there for newsrooms to take to, to confirm that they will, in fact, move towards a, a commitment to caring for their whole community. And there's also a petition, if I'm correct, that any individual can sign that challenges their local newsrooms to also take on this issue fully. Yes. And the, the petition is something anyone can sign on to. We also recently opened up the pledge so that individual journalists can sign on as well, because we were hearing from some journalists that they were um, going to their newsrooms and not getting support from their newsroom leadership, but they wanted to sign on and they wanted to make that commitment. So now we've opened it up too, so that individual journalists and newsrooms can sign on to a pledge to care for Black communities. Um, and I, you know, I don't think that's asking for too much. <laughs> I think care is kind of care is the minimum. 
Right, um, <laughs> right. It absolutely. It absolutely feels like the minimum. Yeah. So uh, that's what we're calling for folks to do as a, as a way to just kind of start moving and, and strengthening that foundation um, of, of work that needs to happen. Well, as I said at the top, this work is indeed, to me, feels like some of the most important work of all time as it relates to transforming the future of media that it requires a critical mass to transform that culture. And that everyone listening today and everyone that I can share this message with, I I ask you to don't just listen and hang on to this, but think about what you can actively do in support of it. Alicia, I am so grateful to you for your, you, your colleagues, to all of the work that you're putting in to get this work started and to create the framework and the playbook for us to follow. Um, but it's not on you to see it all through, right? We need the entire community. We need the entire society to, to take this on and to push it forward so that your vision in that 50 years is indeed one that, that works for everyone. Yes, absolutely. And we're excited for all the different shapes that that work takes because um, it's, it it's going to take so many of us and there's so much further we can get in coalition than we can alone. Well, thank you so much for your time today, and we will continue to support you and I look forward to staying in touch. Thanks so much, Gary. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like what you heard, please share this episode with a friend. Mission Forward is produced with the support of Nimra Haroon and the Mission Partners team. Engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is run by Tristan Barton and Roots by Josh Leake. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.